Good afternoon, guys. It's great to be back with you. It's a little bit intimidating because you've had all the uh, great preachers around recently, so I hope we don't lower the standards tonight. But I, I want to share an important message with, with us uh, this afternoon, hopefully that will change us and encourage us and, 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 and push us all forward. Now, when I was, uh, when I was much younger in a, in a previous life, and I was uh, living in the UK, I had a job in sales, I was doing uh, thousands of kilometers a month, and uh, the car that I had wasn't particularly great. It had a few problems, one of which is only a small problem, really, in, in the whole scheme of things. Um, the fuel level indicator didn't work. Now, that's a very small component in the car. But let me tell you, when you live your life in sales and you're traveling around, that one small thing becomes incredibly important. And I found myself many, many times playing fuel bingo, <laughs> which is, you know, you're driving down the motorway and you're thinking, should I stop for fuel? Well, if I stop for fuel here, I'm going to... Let me see if I can make it to the next spot. And then you then realize, wait a minute, maybe I've miscalculated. It was great for your prayer life. Lord, if you can just get me to the next fuel stop. I'll, and, uh, and sometimes I did get to the next fuel stop. Most times I did. But occasionally I miscalculated and I'd get that dreaded. And then depending on how close I was to the next source of fuel, I had a choice. I could either... Um, Go and get a, a fuel canister, and, you know, if I was smart, I would have kept a canister of fuel in the car, right? <laughs> Not that smart. Or I would go and get a, you know, walk to the, the local, or hitchhike to the local uh, petrol station, get some petrol, put it in my car. But if I was close enough, I would try and push my car to the fuel station. And, you know, it's... It's amazing, when the road is flat, you can push your car. And when you're going downhill, you don't even have to push. It's easy. You just get in and freewheel down. And then when you see the uphill on the other side, you're going, right, let's get as much momentum as I can. And then you're going up the other side. But the problem is when you have to push uphill, it gets very difficult, exhausting, and eventually you just don't have the strength to push it anymore. Has anybody ever done that? Is anybody here as stupid as me? <laughs> you know, that's a wonderful picture, actually, of how many of us live our lives. That we, we try and live our lives, if our lives are, are a car, without it being full of fuel, without it being full of gas, without having that thing within us that gives us the power. And when we're going downhill, it almost doesn't matter because we can still manage. And when we're on the straights, we can think, you know, I'm strong enough, I can still do it. And even on the uphills for a while, we'll go, I'm, I'll still, I'm stubborn enough to... But eventually, you'll come to a point where you just cannot push your car any further. It's just too hard. It's too heavy. The hill is too steep. And you find yourself... You know, occasionally I would do this. I think I can just get it. And, and then I, 
on a slight incline and I'm stubborn enough to think I can get it. And then comes that point of panic where not only am I not going forward, I'm in danger of going backwards and the car running over me. Anybody ever felt like that in their life? I think many of us do at times because life is not easy. It wasn't designed to be easy. And we can look around and we can say, oh, this person's life is easier than my life. And I don't know if that's true or if we just don't know what other people are going through. But the unique message of Christ, in contrast to every other religion in the world, every other religion, every other philosophy says, if you push hard enough, you can reach your destination. If you try hard enough, you can attain, you can attain a level of morality, you can attain a level of joy, you can, you can through your own efforts, because you're, you're a human being and humans are ine- inherently amazing creatures, you can do it through your own strength. Other religions say, if you try hard enough and you, you, you try and be moral enough, you can earn your salvation. But the message of Christ is one that I think deep down resonates with all of us. That no matter how hard we push, we come to a point where we can't push anymore. We cannot do it in our own strength. We need the fuel. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives that won't just uh, be there when life is easier and, and, and we're just coasting along, but when we hit the hills, when we hit the crises, when we hit the problems where our own strength will never be good enough, then we need the power of the Holy Spirit to get us over those hills. And then, in one sense, it doesn't matter whether you're driving a Lamborghini or, I don't want to insult anybody, or a Fiat Uno. (laughs) I used to have a little Fiat Uno. I think with with a tailwind, it would get up to about 100 and start shaking, you know? But it doesn't matter whether you're driving a Fiat Uno or a Ferrari. If you've got fuel you can get up the hills. Maybe some will get up quicker and more stylishly than you. But hey, as long as you get to your destination, who cares, right? (laughs) And it's about finding our destination. But without fuel, we're not going to reach our destination. And I want to talk about that fuel tonight. Because does anybody know what is special about today? It's Pentecost Sunday. And lots of us are oblivious to that because... We're not in a church that goes through liturgical seasons and we go every, you know, we, we've got to cel- celebrate this on a particular day. Um, in a sense, we, we can say every day is Pentecost Sunday. Well, every day, every Sunday is Pentecost Sunday because the Holy Spirit is available to us every Sunday. But being that this is the day traditionally chosen to, to celebrate and remember Pentecost, it might be appropriate to talk about the Holy Spirit, right? So that's who we're going to talk about. And just before we get into Pentecost, as we know it in Acts chapter 2, just a little bit of background is that Pentecost is, uh, it comes from a Greek word meaning 50 or 50 days, because Pentecost took place 50 days after Passover. And it was an Old Testament feast. It was an Old Testament celebration. It it was a, a moment that the, the, uh, 
nation of Israel celebrated. That's why when Peter and his mates were preaching um, and 3,000 got saved, that's why Jerusalem was so packed because the people were in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, which in the Old Testament is often called the Feast of Weeks. And the interesting thing about the Feast of Weeks, you can go and read it, there's several parallel passages and some of it's quite complicated and confusing. But there's two elements to the Feast of Weeks that I think are very interesting for us. Because the Old Testament is a picture, yeah? The feasts of the Old Testament are a picture of what Christ would do when he came. So the Passover uh, was a picture of the crucifixion of Christ. You know, they would take a lamb, they would kill the lamb. Jesus was the Passover lamb. And then the Feast of Weeks was a picture of what would happen 50 days later. And 50 days after Christ was crucified was the day of Pentecost. And in the Feast of Weeks, there, was, there were two things about it that are very interesting in, in terms of the context of our conversation. One is that the Feast of Weeks was celebrated with the first fruits of the harvest. So God, as he's setting that picture, he says to Israel, when the harvest comes in, I want you to take the very first fruits and give it to me. There's a concept of first fruits. There's a concept of um, the initial harvest. The first part of the harvest is present at Pentecost. And what do we know happened on the day of Pentecost? 3,000 people were saved. The first fruit of this great harvest, when Jesus said, look, the fields are white unto harvest. He didn't say pray, for, pray that there'll be more harvest. He said the harvest is great, pray for more workers. So there's a massive harvest out there. And as I speak about the Holy Spirit, I want us to remember two things, because part of my focus or a main focus I, I, I have um, this afternoon is in terms of how the Holy Spirit aids us and strengthens us and allows us to get through life. But as we say that, as we look at that and as we study that, I want us always to remember that the Lord left us here for a purpose. Wouldn't it be easier if the day you got saved, the Lord just took you straight to heaven? (laughs) Wouldn't it be like, Lord, I give my life to you, instant rapture. (laughs) Wouldn't that be easier? There would be no struggle. There'd be no backsliding. The, the elders wouldn't have to be going around and chasing people up and getting, you know, the, you would immediately just. So why is it that when, once we come into relationship with Christ, he leaves us here? Because our job is to take as many people with us as possible. So even where it talks about your life and, and aiding you and strengthening you and comforting you and, and correcting you and all of these things, it's so that this man becomes so like Jesus, everybody else goes, I want to know what you know. I want to know who you know. I want what you've got to provoke the world to jealousy so that they in turn surrender to Christ. So that's the first part. Let's not forget that. The Holy Spirit and, and often throughout uh, certainly recent history in the last 50 years, uh, charismatic and Pentecostal churches have experienced different kinds of revivals, different kinds of moves of God. And unfortunately, they've often become very insular. Let's go into a church meeting and just experience this tingly, wonderful sensation of the Holy Spirit coming. Let's just have like a Holy Spirit party and forget that the purpose, or at least a major component of the purpose of the coming of the Holy Spirit 
is the hardest. The second thing is that when you look at the sacrificial system and the, the, the whole uh, Mosaic law, it was for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel, and the sacrificial system was for the Israelites to come and bring their sacrifices. But at the Feast of Weeks, which is the Feast of Pentecost, it said, include the foreigners amongst you. Include those in your household, the slaves, the foreigners, the, the hangers-on. You know, when, uh, when uh, Israel moved from Egypt into the Promised Land, it said there was Israel and then there was a whole bunch of followers. There was a whole bunch of hangers-on, like Israelite wannabes. Caleb's father actually was one of them. And then when the Feast of Pentecost comes and Peter gets up and speaks and explains what's happening, what does he say? He says, no, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that in the last days I will pour my spirit out on all flesh, not just the nation of Israel, but on the Gentiles, on everybody. And it's beautiful. That the Holy Spirit, and, and people often ask me, what's the difference between the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? And people come up with lots of answers that are wrong. <laughs> and I've not got time to go into all of those. But I will tell you this, the main difference between the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is in the Old Testament, he came upon or filled or empowered a select few. He came upon Samson. He came upon David. He would come upon the priests. And in the New Testament, he says, I will pour my spirit out on all flesh, on your sons and daughters. He's no respecter of, of, of your sex. He's no respecter of your age, your social economic status, your ethnicity, your intellect. And the hallmark, the hallmark of a New Testament believer, according to that scripture at least, is that we should be a prophetic people. They shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. And that doesn't mean we transition, you know, like at my age I'm now dreaming instead of having visions. That's not, it's a parallel picture. It's visions and dreams are the same thing. It's saying whether you're young or old, you will, you will, be, a, you will be prophetic. Whether you're rich or poor, you'll be prophetic. And the hallmark of the New Testament believer is that we are prophetic. And here's the thing, true prophecy rather than just kind of sometimes people give a word of encouragement and they call it prophecy. And I don't, you know, that's a talk for another time. I, I was in Brazil recently with a team and there was a young girl with us. Uh, I think she's 19, single. And some of the Brazilian guys looked and thought, she's quite good looking. And in one of our services on a church camp at the end, there's this, this guy prophesying over her. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, I'm not sure how prophetic this prophecy is. Or whether he's... And, and I, I couldn't hear what was going on. I was ministering over somebody else. You know, sometimes you have to multitask when you're leading a team. You know, I'm prophesying over this person and keeping half an eye on that person. And afterwards, I said, I said to her, so, so what did he say? She said, no, he, he prophesied something like, when you walk into a room, your, your smile just lights up the room. I'm going, I'm not sure if that was prophecy or, or a chat-up line. But, yeah. <laughs> but we're called to be a prophetic people. And the only way we can be prophetic 
And prophetic doesn't mean knowing the future. Prophetic is simply um, communicating the heart of God for somebody, whether it's present, past, or future. And if we are going to know the heart of God for somebody, we need to know the heart of God. And the only way we can know God and know the heart of God is through the Spirit of God. He's the one who reveals it to us and leads us into all truth. And the Holy Spirit, unfortunately, um, has often been described as the forgotten person of the Trinity. And part of that is his nature. Like we, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, and there's a humility there. We see the humility in Christ that he made himself a servant, became obedient to the point of death. And therefore, God the Father raised him up and gave him a name above all other names. But the heart of Jesus was humility. The heart of the Holy Spirit is humility. Not to point to himself, but to point to Jesus. And to reveal Jesus to us. And to reveal the Father to us. But he's often the forgotten person of the Trinity. In some churches, it's joked that the Holy Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. And I, I honestly, I value Scripture. It's the rule by which I live. But even Scripture, without the Holy Spirit, will not bring life. Acts tells us that the letter kills, but the Spirit brings life. So even the Bible, without the Holy Spirit, is just a book. Does that sound like heresy? I know, I know people who've read the Bible and studied the Bible and know more about the Bible than I do, and yet are atheists. Because they're reading it just with the letters and not by the Spirit. And they said, this doesn't make sense. I go, what do you mean? It's easy to make sense. No, it's, so compl it's not complicated. It's easy. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is revealing truth. And we need to be a people of the Spirit. And so, we've got the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. And just quick, quickly, the reason there's... The Holy Ghost doesn't mean, nowadays a ghost means the spirit of a dead person. But back when the King James was written, a ghost was just spirit. Okay, so spirit and ghost, way back when, was the, it meant the same thing, but language changes, right? And so that's why most people now talk about Holy Spirit rather than Holy Ghost, because ghost has come to mean something a bit different to us. But that doesn't mean that Holy Ghost is wrong, just... But the, the original language from which we get spirit, um, fortunately, the Hebrew word and the Greek word both are very similar. The Hebrew word ruach and the Greek word pneuma, um, they're very different words, but both of them can mean breath, wind, or spirit. So the Greek word pneuma is where we get words like pneumatic, because air-filled tires, the pneumatic tire is filled with air, it's pneumatic, it's filled with air. And so air, breath, wind can all, are all derived from the same Greek word pneuma or the same word, word ruach. And so some people have, have suggested then that the Holy Spirit is just some kind of wind or force or energy. You know, some people, even some of us, sometimes we can even unconsciously think of the Holy Spirit as like the power of God rather than as a person of the Godhead. And the Holy Spirit is a person. He is spirit, 
in that he doesn't have a physical body. But not having a physical body doesn't make him any less of a person. So the question is, how do, how do I define a person? A personality. And some have got lots of personality. <laughs> so we don't define a person by their body, right? Otherwise, if I chopped Carl's legs off, am I making him less of a person if he's no legs? <laughs> In fact, that's one, one, and this is another topic for another time, but abortion activists will say, oh, no, but you can, you can kill that unborn child because it's not fully developed. And the fact that it hasn't got a fully developed body does not make it any less of a person. Right? Otherwise, we extrapolate that and say a person with one leg, a person with one arm, a person with intellectual difficulties, they're not a person. And we can deny the personhood. So what defines a person? What defines a person is that they've got a mind, they've got a will, and they've got emotions. And we are told quite clearly in Scripture that he possesses intelligence and wisdom. If you're taking notes, you can look at Romans 8.27 or 1 Corinthians 2, Ephesians 1. He's got feelings and emotions. He can be grieved. He, he has desires. Ephesians 4 and Isaiah 63. And he has a will. 1 Corinthians 12.11. But his will is perfectly submitted to the will of the Godhead. Which is a good job, really. So he's got a mind, a will, and emotions. He is a person, just as much as you and I are a person. In fact, more so, because we are a person with limits. He is a person, his personhood has no limits. So I have a mind. You might think it's infinite in wisdom, but it's not. I have a will, but I actually don't have free will. And I don't mean that from the theological Debate about sovereignty and free will. My will is limited by my lack of power. Yeah? I can't do anything I want to do. I can only do anything I'm able to do. And because I'm not able to do anything, my will is limited. The Holy Spirit is all-powerful. And so his will is unlimited. And my emotions are fixed within this faulty, fallen body and this old system that I have that's just messed up. And so my emotions can, can lead me astray. My heart is deceitful above all things. My emotions can, can be sinful. My emotions can be reckless. My emotions can be inconsistent. But he is perfect in all of his ways and all of his feelings. I want, to get an, I want to get to know somebody like that. Some of us don't. You know why? Because it's a bit intimidating having a friend like that. That's why I don't have many friends, because I'm just too intimidating. People think I'm too awesome. I'm having a T-shirt made. It says, I'm nobody, because nobody's perfect. <laughs> Now, I want to know somebody like that. I know my own weaknesses and my own failings. I know that my mind can't take me where it... My mind is limited. My understanding is limited. Isn't it great to know somebody whose understanding isn't limited? When I'm fearing the future, isn't it great to have a friend who knows the future? 
when my circumstances seem too big for me. Isn't it great to have a friend who's bigger than my circumstances? When my emotions are failing me, when I'm wrestling depression or anxiety or anger or bitterness or unforgiveness, isn't it great to have a friend who can lead me into perfect emotions? Isn't it great to have somebody who's totally submitted to God the Father and can take me to that place as well? So he is the one who draws people to God. He convicts us of sin. He's the one who reveals Jesus Christ. He's the one who, who endues us with power. He's the one who produces fruit in us. He's the one who works in perfect harmony and cooperation with the other persons of the Godhead. He's the one who creates and sustains life. And he's the one who brings sinful man to salvation. I want to know him. I want to hang out with him. Because you become like the people you hang out with. I want to become more like that. I want to see his influence working through my life more and more. So since he's a person and not some impersonal force or kind of lightning bolts coming out of you know, God's fingertips or any of these strange things, seeing as he is a person, it would do as well to search what the scripture says about him and about the nature of our relationship with him. Because if we do that, we can correct our misunderstandings, we can bring clarity, and we can move into a deeper relationship. So one thing I hear often when it comes to theology is people say, it's not about, it's, it's not knowing about God. I don't care how much you know about God, you must know God. Have you heard that saying? And it's true. It's no good knowing all about him if you don't know him. Right? I can read all the books on Nelson Mandela that, there ever, that have ever been written, but that doesn't mean I ever knew him. But I would say this. If I want to know somebody, I also want to know everything about them. Yeah? And so it's not, I don't get salvation through knowing about God. Salvation comes through knowing God. But knowing him, if I want a relationship, single guys, here's a key. Here's a tip for you. If you like a girl, don't tell her all about yourself. Ask her all about herself. Right? You know, the old, there's an old saying. It says, uh, a bore talks about himself, a gossip talks about other people, and a brilliant conversationalist talks about you. <laughs> but I, I want to know about him because the more I know about him, the deeper relationship I will have with him. It's not a substitute for knowing him, but it's the, necess it's the inevitable fruit of wanting a deeper relationship is to know more about him. We need to be clear. Every believer, every believer, if you've surrendered to Christ, if you've come into a relationship with Jesus, if you've received the free gift of life, the free gift of salvation, then the Holy Spirit lives in you. That's the starting point we need to understand. 
There are not first-class Christians and second-class Christians. They're not spirit-filled Christians and non-spirit-filled Christians. You can't be a Christian unless the Spirit is living within you because you can't be saved by your own efforts, your own good deeds. You can only be saved by a work of the Spirit. And it's yielding to the conviction and the life-giving of the Holy Spirit that brings us out of that tomb into life. Lazarus could not walk out of the tomb by his own efforts. He'd been dead four years, four days, four years. Really would have been a different story. He'd been dead four days. He was stinky. He was dead. No amount of effort could get him out of that tomb. He was raised as Jesus spoke and the Holy Spirit brought life to to a dead body. And your salvation is no less a miracle than Lazarus being brought forth from that tomb. It can only happen as a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It's not that suddenly somebody explained it to you and you went, oh yeah, I see it now. Because when I preach the gospel, I'm shining a light But if you're blind, it doesn't matter what light I'm shining, you're not going to see it. I can shine light, but only the Holy Spirit can open blind eyes. That should be a lesson for us in our evangelism. Yes, let's be those who shine a light. But understand, it's not our persuasive words, our clever arguments. It's not spending hours listening to apologetics videos so that we know how to win an argument. You can win an argument and lose a soul. I remember speaking to a couple of Mormons in my house a few years back. And basically, as they spoke, and I listened to them with much grace, I, I was trying to um, bring truth to them. And one of the guys was just like, I could see he was losing faith in what he believed. You might say that's a good thing. It's a good thing if he then surrenders to Christ. It's a bad thing if he leaves an atheist. Because <laughs> whether he's a Mormon or an atheist, he's got the same amount of hope, Right. It's not about winning an argument, it's about winning souls. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. But I want to say, if you've received that free gift, then the Holy Spirit is is working in you, he's living in you, he has filled you. He is indwelling you. On that scripture is clear. We cannot be born again except by the Spirit. John says that to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Titus 3 and Romans 8 also tell us the same thing. So all believers, therefore, have some form of relationship with him. The question is, what kind of relationship? A casual relationship? Are you frenemies? I think sometimes we have like a frenemy relationship with the Holy Spirit, right? We're like, we're friends, but we don't like what he says to us often. Or do we have an intimate relationship? But because Scripture is so clear that all who are born again are born again by the Spirit, they say, well, that's it. That's when the Holy Spirit comes and fills you. That's when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's all you need. Uh, There's no need for all this weird charismatic kind of baptism in the Holy Spirit and all those weird stuff that goes on like shaking and falling over and stuff. That's, that's not necessary because we are baptized at the moment of salvation. But that, doesn't, that argument doesn't hold water if we look at Scripture. 
We're told quite clearly in Scripture that we need to be filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 5, 18 to 19. And when Paul writes this, he uses a Greek phrase very intentionally that, without going into the details, basically should be translated, a good translation would, would be continually or keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. We're also urged to live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit. That's about building an ongoing relationship. And to say that the Holy Spirit indwells me when I'm, when I'm saved and so that's it, there's no other experience, is like me saying, I remember the day I got married, my wife, my, Chantel became my wife and that's it, I don't need any other experiences with Chantel. That wouldn't be much of a marriage. We would have a marriage legally, but experientially and in reality, there would be no marriage. And we cannot reduce our relationship with God to a legal document or to one-off experience. It's an ongoing relationship. And an ongoing relationship, generally, for most of us who are normal, requires ongoing interaction. It means when I find that my, my relationship with my wife, there's something not quite right in it because I've been an idiot again. Man, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> or when you've drifted apart because of busyness and work and kids and all of those things, and you think, yeah, we're still married. There's, it's not like we're going to get divorced, but there's a lack of intimacy. I'm now going to have another. We're going to come and do something together, whatever that may be. We're going to have a date night. We're going to have intimacy, physical intimacy. We're going to talk, whatever it is. But we're going to have an experience of each other to restore and strengthen and deepen the intimacy that we have. How redundant would it be to say, oh, no, you were, you were intimate once, so you don't need it again. terrible. It's not just wrong, it's stupid. I don't mind people being wrong. I get a bit more annoyed with people being stupid. Sorry, I'm just being a bit... <laughs> but some people have suggested then, well, okay, yes, we need an ongoing filling and refreshing of the Holy Spirit, but that's just an ongoing, imperceptible, non-experiential thing. And actually, the majority of the, of the church today believes that. Others have suggested that a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit is necessary. Some even suggest that if you haven't experienced a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're not really saved. Some extreme people say, and I don't say this, because Scripture doesn't say this. Some extreme people say, everybody who's baptized in the Spirit speaks in tongues. Speaks in tongue, speaking in tongues is the evidence of, of baptism. Baptism is a requirement for salvation. Therefore, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a proper Christian, and you're not truly saved. Man, that is garbage. Some of the people I know who love Jesus the most are people who don't speak in tongues. And I'm not going to say it's better not to speak in tongues, but I'm not going to say you're not a proper Christian if you don't. I'm not going to say you're somehow a second-class citizen of heaven or that you're not even saved 
If that was the case, the thief on the cross would have a bit of a problem. And so you've got some people who say, no, there is no secondary um, physical uh, manifest, obvious, perceptible experience. And there's others that say there is and it's necessary. So which one's right? Well, neither. I don't think we should fall into an either or mentality. We shouldn't limit ourselves to looking only for sudden dramatic experiential moments of power but neither should we discount such experiences. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't dismiss them, but don't um, don't idolize them. That's a good word, yeah. And so I want to show you, I want to show you from Scripture what Scripture says about this so we can maintain a healthy balance in this. And by balance, I don't mean a bit of each. By balance, balance is by being radical both ways sometimes. Yeah? I want to radically say that if you never experience tangibly and physically the power of the Holy Spirit in your bodies, doesn't mean you're any less saved. Right? I want to say that. I want to be extreme about that. It is not proof of salvation that you shake and rattle and roll and fall over. On the other hand, I want to say, I love when the Holy Spirit moves in power and overcomes us and manifests physically. And we should be open to that and expectant for that. And we need to celebrate that. So by, by, by being balanced... Like a tightrope walker has a weight on each end of his pole. He doesn't put the weight in the middle. And too often what we do is to get balance, we compromise. And I'm, I'm saying no compromise. Balance, not compromise. Okay. So let's look what Scripture says. Because some of you need to hear one way and some of you need to hear the other. Jesus breathed on his disciples In John 20, 22, we see this. Jesus came to his disciples, and he, see, he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is not at Pentecost. This is before he's ascended. And they're being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they're followers of Jesus. They've surrendered to Jesus. In that sense, they are born again. Maybe this is the moment where they go from just being followers of Jesus to being born again. But they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So that should be it, right? They shouldn't need anything else. If you believe that it's just once and done. And yet these same apostles are present on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Christ instructed them to wait for the gift that had been promised. We read about that in Acts 1, verse 4. It says, wait in Jerusalem. Don't leave, because there's a gift my Father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. You've heard me speak about it. You've not a clue what it is yet, because you're a bit thick. The disciples were a bit dumb, right? But we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be arrogant, because we're just as dumb. 
He says, wait until you receive this gift. And I want to emphasize the word gift. If I say I've got a gift for you, generally that's something that's positive, that you desire, that you would want. Yeah? Not I've got a burden for you, not I've got an assignment, not I've got a duty, not I've got an obligation, not I've got a standard for you to meet. I've got a gift for you. And so when it comes to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, let's think of it not in terms of a theological construct, argument, or obligation, but as a gift. If Jesus has got a gift for me, I want it. And so, even though they've had the Holy Spirit breathed upon them, they still have to wait for the gift, which is the outpouring, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They'd received the Holy Spirit. They'd confessed Him as Lord. They were His followers, but He had another gift for them. And this gift was a sudden, powerful, experiential encounter with the Holy Spirit. And guess what? It wasn't a one-off. So some people say, yes, there has to be this uh, powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit, uh, but only once because it's baptism and we're only baptized once, right? We're only baptized in water once. The reason we're only baptized in water once is because water baptism is when I uh, identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus only died once. He didn't have to keep dying every time I sinned. Right? So that there should only ever, you only have to get baptized in water once. But baptism of the Holy Spirit is not that. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is something else, and the only thing it's got in common is the word baptism, which is a picture, it's a metaphor, because baptizal, the Greek word, uh, came from the textile industry where you'd take a piece of linen, you'd dunk it in the dye, and it'd come out a different color. How many times do you dye a piece of linen? Well, it depends, right? You may dye it, what, you may dunk it once, it comes out perfect, it looks beautiful, and then 10 years later it's a bit faded. What would you do? Dye it again. Okay, so you, you baptize it as often as it needs to look that color. And the word baptism speaks of being overwhelmed. The word overwhelmed literally, to, overwhelmed literally means to be drowning having the water cover you. We need to be overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. And again, let's not limit that to being overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit means shaking, rattling, and rolling. You may shake, rattle, and roll when you're overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. You may just have a dramatic emotional change. You may suddenly find yourself able to forgive the unforgivable. You may just find yourself falling on your knees in gratitude. But you're just overwhelmed. And when we start to limit how the Spirit manifests by saying there should never be a physical uh, um, manifestation or there should always be a physical manifestation, both times you're trying to dictate to the Holy Spirit how he relates to you. Which is rather like me saying to my wife, this is how you must treat me for me to have intimacy with you. You know the love languages, the five love languages? I think that's really helpful and really dangerous. When it's dangerous is when I say, 
this is my love languages, language, this is how you must love me. No. The purpose of the love language is for me to know how to love you. Yeah? So I love you in the way that appeals to you, not demanding that you love me in a way that appeals to me. So even in our worship, or I don't like that kind of worship. I like more tradition. I don't care what kind of worship you like. I care what kind of worship he likes. What's his love language? His love language is faith. His love language is humility. His love language is obedience. And guess what? Because he is all-knowing and I'm not, I might prefer and say, can you work in me this way? And he goes, no, I know better than you do what you need. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a tool, not a force. And so in Acts 2, we see this powerful experiential account, encounter, but it wasn't a one-off. In Acts 4, we see a similar experience again. Acts 4.31, the whole room shakes. And a lot of the people who were present in that event in Acts 4 were the same people that were present in Acts 2. So the Bible tells us that we can have these experiential encounters on multiple occasions. Acts 8, by the way, the book of Acts in your Bibles probably is, is the, it probably says the Acts of the Apostles somewhere. No, it's not the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit working through the Apostles. In Acts 8, we see, again, this picture emerging that there can be experiences subject to conversion in which the Holy Spirit comes powerfully upon somebody, anointing them, equipping them, empowering them for God's service. Acts 9 shows Paul being filled with the Holy Spirit on a separate occasion to his conversion. Acts 10 shows us the first time a Gentile has a powerful encounter. And this is just to mess with your heads that it's not a formula but a relationship. Cornelius invites Peter. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's an unbeliever. And he says... And, and, and um, the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and says, go speak to Cornelius. And he's preaching the gospel to Cornelius while he's preaching the gospel. Before Cornelius has said the sinner's prayer. Before Peter has said, I see that hand. <laughs> Whilst he's still speaking, the Holy Spirit interrupts. And the Holy Spirit interrupts. Why? Because he doesn't need to see a hand. He knows everything and he sees the heart. And he sees the heart of Cornelius responding to the gospel. He sees a repentant heart and he goes, there's somebody, something I'm attracted to. That's where I want to be. And he comes, boom, and we see power break out over Cornelius and his household. But we, wait, wait a minute. No, let's, let's make sure you do the sinner's prayer first. Then maybe a foundations course, and then water baptism, and that. I've seen people get water baptized who haven't had a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit, and as they come out of the water, they come speaking in tongues. I've seen people come out of the waters of baptism healed, delivered. It's not a formula, it's a relationship.
Even in Acts 19, Paul meets some disciples. Some disciples, some followers of Jesus. And he lays hands on them. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they speak in tongues. In each case, the experience is different to that imperceptible indwelling of the Spirit that happens to every Christian. And in each case, the Holy Spirit moves powerfully. So do all men experience such a baptism? Or all people? Just be a bit more inclusive. Do all people experience such a baptism? And I have to say, no, not all do. Some are not open to receive it. Some don't believe in it. And some of the greatest names in our church history are those who haven't believed in a separate baptism with the Holy Spirit. When I hear people say, well, you're not properly saved unless you've had it, I'm going, wait a minute. Do you want to stack up what you've done for the Lord compared to some of these people? (laughs) Don't tell me they weren't being used by the Lord. Don't tell me they weren't full of the Holy Spirit. So what is, what is the evidence that you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Some people say, well, speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is an evidence. But as I look through Scripture, this is the more important evidence. One, when people are baptized with the Holy Spirit, they increase in boldness. That is a common, commonality throughout. They increase in boldness. Why? Because it's the Feast of Weeks. It's about the first fruits. It's about the harvest. Peter goes from denying Christ three times to preaching to 3,000. In Acts 4, they're filled with boldness. So boldness is one. And secondly, and this is more important than the gifts, although the Holy Spirit has gifts for us, is the fruit of the Spirit. I wish people would be more obsessed with love than they are with speaking in tongues. Because <laughs> I can speak in the tongues of men and angels. I can prophesy in all knowledge. I can give my, everything I have to the poor and my body to be burned. And without love, it all means nothing. And so the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and the rest, are evidence that we are filled with the Spirit. A Christ-like nature, a Christ-like character, a Christ-like obedience is evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in us. A willingness to repent. In Hebrews It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the truth, then there's no sacrifice for sins is left. And basically tells us there is no hope of salvation. And people have read that and go, does that mean if I backslide, I can never come back to the Lord? And I say, I don't read it that way. The way I read it is this, that if I'm deliberately sinning, what I'm doing is saying, the Holy Spirit is convicting me and I'm choosing to ignore the Holy Spirit. I'm choosing to rebel against him. I'm choosing to work against his work of conviction. And my heart will harden. And as long as I'm in a state, as long as my heart is positioned to deny the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, I cannot be brought back to repentance. Because he's the agent of bringing me back to repentance by convicting me of sin. But even if I fall into absolute depravity, backsliding, if... And here's the danger. You, you, may, you may get beyond this point. But if at that point I stop resisting the Holy Spirit, 
and start listening to him. I can be brought back to repentance because I'm no longer in that place of actively resisting his work. So if you want to know if you're full of the Holy Spirit, here's a good question. When he convicts you of sin, do you repent? You go, well, no. Are you still being convicted of sin? Yes, well, then that's a good sign because that's the work of the Holy Spirit. If you say, I'm never convicted of sin, then come speak to me after. We'll pray for you. I'm not saying you're not saved, but I think you're in a dangerous place. Seriously, because it's a relationship. How do we know God, God, God reveals himself as father, not mother, right? God reveals himself as, as, as male, even though he's spirit being, he's not got a physical body. You know how I know God is male and not female? He tells me when he's upset with me. <laughs> if God was female, I'd say, Lord, what, what have I done? Goes, if you don't know by now, you never will. <laughs> he convicts me. Because his relationship. And the hyper-grace teachers, some of them have, have said, the Holy Spirit will never convict you of sin, and they have this. And I go, you say that as though it's a bad thing. Why do you think it's a bad thing that the Holy Spirit would convict me of sin? I want him to, because I don't want to upset my Lord and Savior. I don't want to do things that grieve him. I want to know if there's something in my life that's offensive so I can change it. It's like, how many of you... Seriously, I mean, I'm joking. But how many of you in your marriage, as your partner, you know there's something wrong and they won't tell you what it is? Is that pleasant? I'm so glad my partner doesn't convict me of sin. But please tell me. Because sometimes I'm just too dumb to know. And then my wife tells me, I go, oh, did I not figure that out? These are the signs of being filled with the Holy Spirit. But the gifts are a sign as well. So, do all men experience such a baptism, this experiential, powerful manifestation? No. Because some are not open. Some don't believe in it. I would go as far as to say all men can experience it. I might even go as far as to say all men should experience it. But I cannot say all men must experience it in order, be tr in order to be true believers. And it's obvious that not all men do or have. God, in his grace, has obviously many times given his people the equivalent empowering through that imperceptible ongoing filling as he sometimes does with that sudden manifestation. But that's his grace. That's him working in us, knowing how stupid we are. But what is his ideal? His ideal is a gift that he has for us. And so, when I talk about this and people say, must I experience it? I say, that's the wrong question. If God has something powerful and amazing and life-changing for me, should my question be, do I have to? Or should my question be, how much can I have? Why would I not want something that God has for me? And Jesus said it when he walked the earth. If you ask your father for a fish or bread, will he give you rocks or a, or a snake? 
He'll give you good things. If he says he's got a gift, yes, please. And here's the sad thing. Some of you, it's like three weeks after Christmas, you've been given gifts and they're still sat under the tree wrapped. And you're going, I didn't get anything for Christmas. I've not got any gifts. No, they've been given to you, they're yours, you just haven't unwrapped them. Does that make sense? The Spirit is sovereign. How can we prescribe to Him or limit Him? How can we make demands and say, you will work with me this way? Why would we want to? He not only fills us at the moment of salvation, and he not only fills us in an ongoing, imperceptible way. And I want to say this, what we can do, because we're lazy people, and we want instant results, we've got instant coffee, we've got, uh, like, those of you young do not know the pain of a dial-up modem. (laughs) And the line crashes after three hours and you lose your whole download. Who remembers those days? Everything's got to be instant and easy. Like when we've got problems, we'd rather go through deliverance than discipleship sometimes. Because we want a quick fix, we want an easy answer. And so, yeah, I want to come on Sundays, and every Sunday have somebody lay hands on me and me, me have this experiential, emotional moment, rather than me doing the hard work of building a relationship. And if I can, we've got no kids, not many kids around. That would be like me saying, you know, the only way I want to build a relationship with my wife is to have sex. Because that feels good. I don't want to do the hard work of picking my underwear up off the floor and doing the dishes. And Yeah? Part of relationship takes work. It takes prioritizing. It takes in your quiet moments, on your day. And we go, so God will come with these moments, but it's not meant as a substitute for const- Constantly, continually, daily building a relationship. We need to actively seek both. We need to actively seek those ongoing, just building relationship moments that are imperceptible, gradual. You know, it's like, when you haven't seen a young kid for years and then you look around and you say, when did you get so big? It's like you only notice because you haven't seen them for years. But when it's your own kids, you don't notice because you don't notice the daily change. And if you're spending, you know, sometimes it's like, again, we want, um, we want spectacular results. So I have a quiet time and, you know, I spend an hour with the Lord and then I, I come away and go, I don't feel any different. That was a waste of time. Well, it's not about that you felt different. One, it's a discipline. Two, it's building relationship. And three, sometimes the difference is imperceptible. But when you add up all the imperceptible differences, you find a big change. We should be seeking both. Don't let Sundays and Wednesdays and somebody praying for you and having these exciting experiences be a substitute for a real relationship. We are not friends with benefits. I'll leave that there before I get into trouble. 
<laughs> to be continuously filled with the Spirit, we need to be repeatedly refilled. And we must be open to the Spirit doing this in any manner He desires at any point. And we need refilling because sin grieves the Spirit and quenches His operation in our lives. His lost control over us has to be regained. When God wants to refine us, when God wants to reach deeper into areas of our lives that aren't fully under his control, we need the refreshing of the Holy Spirit and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. As we live and minister, we expend or impart power and our strength needs to be renewed. New situations demand new wisdom. New problems require new solutions. Intimidation and persecution requires new boldness. And miracles require power. And we require greater and greater filling. Sometimes, though, what happens is our theology gets in the way. Say, but the Holy Spirit's a person. How can I be filled with a person? How can, how can I have more of a person? Well, metaphorically, my wife can have more or less of me, right? She can have more of my heart, more of my time, more of a, my commitment. And we can have more or less of the Holy Spirit. That's not like I get his pinky now and then I get his liver. and then No, we have more or less of him. But again, a lot of the, the language is metaphorical. And, and the biblical language is be filled. The biblical language is be baptized. The biblical language is, tells us that we can have more, that we need to seek more, that we need to seek a deeper experience and a greater relationship. Likewise, and I was going to do this um, at the prayer equip that we did, but I think I offended enough people with, with the message I did give. But I want to say this. The Godhead is not like the Department of Motor Vehicles or the, the, the driving license center. By that I mean, you know, how many of you gone to renew your license or whatever? You, you queue up for hours, then you get to a window and they say, sorry, you're at the wrong window, you need to be over there. And there you are. I have to queue four hours at this window now. And some people go, no, no, you shouldn't be praying to the Holy Spirit. You should be praying uh, to Jesus to ask the Father to send the Spirit. And if you pray to the Holy Spirit, that's wrong because it's like, man, I don't think the members of the Godhead, the persons of the Godhead are insecure. And they're all fully God. I don't think, you know, in my prayer, I go, Holy Spirit, come. And then eventually he says, no, you're at the wrong window. You've actually got to go to the sun. I don't think that's how it works. And we can get so tied up and I believe in being theologically correct. I believe in praying with understanding, but not splitting hers. When my kids speak to me and ask me for stuff, or tell me they love me, or tell me they love me because they want stuff. <laughs> it's not about splitting hairs. It's about the relationship. And I don't say, sorry, you've asked for it slightly the wrong way. My desire is to bless them. My desire is to do good for them. The Trinity 
works in perfect cooperation. And the spirit that brought life that we see in Genesis 1 is continuing his work of creating and sustaining both physical and spiritual life. He's continuing to do do the job of making things exist that don't currently exist. The work of the Holy Spirit continues to sustain and uphold the universe and life. And Jesus himself was able to perform his, his teachings and his miracles because of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't rely on his own deity, his own power, his own intellect for his ministry, but he emptied himself, made himself nothing, and put himself in a position where he was completely reliant on the Holy Spirit for everything that he did. In Acts 10, it talks about how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. He was able to teach and do deliverance and healing by the power of the Holy Spirit, not because he was the second person of the Godhead. When he went through Gethsemane, when he went through his trial, when he went to Calvary, when he was nailed to that tree, when the the judgment of the Father and the sin of the world was heaped upon him, we will never fathom the physical, mental, spiritual, and relational torment and anguish that Jesus felt at the cross. What sustained him on the cross? Well, Hebrews 9, 14 says, He who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God. Romans 8, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. He was put to death, Peter writes, in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus himself could do nothing except by the power of the Spirit. Jesus himself had a relationship with the Spirit. And sometimes it was visible and manifest. When he was baptized by John, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. There was a physical manifestation. At other times, Jesus would take himself away from the crowd into a quiet place and just spend time with his Father and with the Spirit. That's what sustained him. It's what empowered him. It's what allowed him to be fully obedient. If that is the case, if Jesus himself had to be fully reliant on the Holy Spirit, how much more so do we need him? How many of us are trying to push our own car to the finish line? Exhausting ourselves, getting nowhere, rolling backwards, whatever it is, and really struggling and saying, how am I going to make it? And he's saying, I've got a free gift for you. A full tank of fuel. And it doesn't matter what the petrol prices are, (laughs) because it's a free gift. How many of you would be excited if I offered you a full tank of petrol tonight? Yeah? How many of you? Come on. Uh, If I said there's a free tank of petrol for everybody tonight, I I think you'd be be getting the the pump jockey to to keep... No, more. It, It could take another drop. 
And you would, you'd be happy to see that tank to overflowing as long as you knew it was full. Well, there's something more valuable for you tonight. It's that fuel we need to live our lives in a way that pleases God, to endure to the end, to run the race, to reach the finish line, and to do it with joy and peace. It's the ability to forgive the unforgivable. It's the ability to see salvations and deliverance and healing. And the hallmark of the New Testament church is that it would be poured out on all flesh. Nobody disqualified who is willing to come. And Jordan, I think you read during the worship that scripture. Come, drink freely the wine. And sometimes when you drink a lot of wine, you get a little drunk. I've heard. (laughs) And wine is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, just because of his power and his magnificence and his love, you know, even, even secular poets and secular movie writers will talk about being drunk with love. If they can talk about being drunk with love, can't we be drunk with an experience and intimacy of the Holy Spirit from time to time? So I want to ask for a response tonight. And I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe we'll have a Pentecost-type experience. Maybe God will just do something real but not physically manifest. I don't know. But I'm, I'm open. Are you open? Or do you come to him with conditions? But I know many of us are tired, weary, afraid, discouraged, guilty, ashamed. All of those things. And it's interesting, I shared a word this morning about when Lazarus came out of the tomb and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and he called him by name. He'd been dead for four days and now he's alive. But there's a small problem. He's wrapped up in grave clothes. He's wrapped up in clothing appropriate for being in a tomb. And the next step after he was brought to life was to change his clothes. And the Holy Spirit wants to come and for many of us, take off the old and put on the new. For some here, the grave clothes might be depression. It might be shame. It might be guilt. It might be hopelessness. It might be addiction. It might be fear. But there's all of those things that are appropriate for the tomb, but not appropriate for those who've been called to life. And he's called us to life by his Spirit, to be filled with his Spirit, to manifest his spirit, that we can be his vessels to call others to life. And it's going to be very difficult to call others to life while we are wrapped in grave clothes. So if you tonight feel, you know, I really need, my tank is empty. I feel like I've been pushing this car up a hill. I need to be filled. So I know I've been going on a long time, but I I really felt this was an important word for us tonight. If that's you tonight, just stand where you are. I'm trusting that 
the Holy Spirit is going to come and do something powerful amongst us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's just adopt a, a posture, whether it be physical or in our heart, of just, of just of humility, of a willingness to receive, a willingness to hear. I want to trust that as I'm praying, some of you will hear from the Lord for yourself. Some of you will hear the Lord for somebody else. And if you get a word for somebody, go share it, go minister. Sometimes when we've got a full tank and we see somebody who's got an, em an empty tank, the best thing we can do is to take from our tank and give to them. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I thank you that you said you would send another counselor. You would send your spirit and your spirit would lead us into all truth. Your spirit would reveal you and your spirit would come and help us become more like you. And Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. Earlier I said you're the forgotten person of the Trinity, but you're not, you're not forgotten here. We know that the Godhead works in perfect unity. Father, Son, Spirit. And so many, so many of us have been trying to run our race with an empty tank. So many of us have experienced grief and discouragement and tiredness and opposition and persecution, guilt and shame. And we are not able through our own efforts or through some self-help manual to, to bring ourselves into a place of life, but you call us by name, and you call us to life, and you put your spirit in us, you breathe upon us, and say, receive my spirit, and I pray right now that your spirit would fall on many, many lives, everybody who's responded right now, Holy Spirit, come and refresh, and refill, and baptize, and overwhelm, and touch, Whatever word we want to use, there's so many beautiful descriptive words because you are so creative and you are not confined to a system, but you are the sovereign Lord who comes and manifests amongst your people. Come, Spirit of God. We want to be a people who seek you. We want to seek you in times like this for significant moments, but we also want to seek you for those significant moments in the quietness of our own rooms, the quietness of our own times with you. And we want to be a people who are committed to continually being refreshed and filled by the Holy Spirit. We want to be a people who keep in step with you, who walk with you, who want a relationship with you. We don't just want to experience things from you. We don't want to just take stuff from you. We want you. 
But I thank you that when we're in relationship with you, you'd know how to give good gifts. And there are people here today, and I, I mentioned that the hallmark of New Testament church is to be a prophetic people. If you desire more of the gift of prophecy, just raise your hand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you, in your word, Paul writes, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gifts of prophecy. And I pray, Lord, for a, by the Holy Spirit, an increase in revelation, an increase in, in prophetic utterances, an increase in an ability to just speak your heart and speak over people the truth that only you know. Not that we would look amazing, but that you would be revealed to people and hearts would be turned to you. An increase in the prophetic. Lord, I want to pray for those who desire an increase in the ability to witness and, and see people saved. Just raise your hands if you, if you want to. Yes, Lord. We know that that's our, our great commission, is to make disciples. And so easily we get intimidated. So easy we disqualify ourselves. So often we think we can't, but we know that you can. And it doesn't matter how eloquent we are, how wise we are, how much knowledge we are. We cannot save people, but you can. And I pray, Lord, for a stirring of the hearts, a stirring of passion for the lost, and a greater sensitivity to your heart for the lost, that we would keep our eyes open for opportunities and be willing to speak and just be a vessel for you to work through. Knowing that you breathe life into dead bodies. Come Holy Spirit. Let us be known as a people of the Spirit. A Spirit-led people. That our agendas, our priorities, our ambitions, our works, families, skills, everything is surrendered to you. that you might come. Make us more like Jesus and use us to your glory. I thank you that every single person in this room, your desire is to use them for your glory. Nobody's excluded from that. And I pray that this week you will begin to reveal more and more your nature, your heart, your desire for each individual, that they would walk in a greater degree of revelation and walking more of a sense of bringing glory to you through their lives and their words. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Mike. So, yeah, coffee at the back, the world outside. <laughs> let's, uh, yeah, let's shine and...